there's a proper call to worship for us from Louis Armstrong. Here's our text for this evening. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month will be the, oh, we're in Exodus 12 and 13. I'm sorry. I know some of you like to actually read your scriptures like good Christians. Um, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month will be the first month. It will be the first month of the year for you. Tell the whole Israelite community on the 10th day of this month, they must take a lamb for each household, a lamb per house. If a household is too small for a lamb, it should share one with a neighbor nearby. You should divide the lamb in proportion to the number of people who will be eating it. Your lamb should be a flawless one-year-old male. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You should keep close watch over it until the 14th day of this month. At twilight on that day, the whole assembled Israelite community should slaughter their lambs. They should take some of the blood and smear it on the two doorposts and on the beam over the door of the houses in which they are eating. That same night, they should eat the meat roasted over the fire. They should eat it along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Don't eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted over fire with its head, legs, and internal organs. Don't let any of it remain until morning and burn any of it left over in the morning. This is how you should eat it. You should be dressed with your sandals on your feet and your walking stick in your hand. You should eat the meal in a hurry. It is the Passover of the Lord. I'll pass through the land of Egypt that night and I'll strike down every oldest child in the land of Egypt, both humans and animals. I'll impose judgments on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be your sign on the houses where you live, where whenever I see the blood, I'll pass over you. No plague will destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And then chapter 13, the Lord said to Moses, dedicate to me all your oldest children, each firstborn offspring from any Israelite womb belongs to me, whether human or animal. Moses said to the people, remember this day, which is the day that you came out of Egypt, out of the place where you were slaves, because the Lord acted with power to bring you out of it. No leavened bread may be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you, you are going to leave. The Lord will bring you to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. It is the land that the Lord promised your ancestors to give you, a land full of milk and honey. You should perform this ritual in this month. You must eat unleavened bread for seven days. The seventh day is a festival to the Lord. Only unleavened bread should be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread and no yeast should be seen among you in your whole country. You should explain to your children on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. So we have heard this story. Yes, this is familiar to most of us, I'm guessing. Uh, what do you first think of when we read about plagues and blood on doors and roasted lambs and Angels passing over, causing death. 2020? Oh, wait, no, that's not the first thing. Yeah, that scripture reading was for this year, right? Like, we're doing plagues and all sorts of other fun things. 
Anyone else think it's a weird story? Like scary and uncertain and hopeful, kind of all rolled into one. Yeah, all right. lots of different feelings, maybe our emotions. I've always wondered why like God made so many plagues, like why he didn't just like do one thing and like make it happen. Like why he had to like go through it all before. You know, it even says in there that like God hardened Pharaoh's heart in part of the process after Pharaoh hardened his own heart. But you know, like I just don't understand like why he didn't just like instantly make it happen, why there is a process, I guess. Yeah, which, so God hardening Pharaoh's heart is one of the scripture passages I have most trouble with. I struggle understanding that because I see God as God who wants the heart of Pharaoh. Uh, but Pharaoh represents pure evil. And and by the way, hi, Roger. I forgot to greet you before I started in this. Good to see you this evening. Uh, jump in here with some of your wisdom if you, if you are comfortable. Um, yeah, so I think, Brianna, it's similar to like our study of Revelation where it was intended to be opportunities to change your mind and repent and go the right path. Um, but we know even after this, this one final plague, Pharaoh says, okay, go, and they leave, and then Pharaoh changes his mind again. And so there seems to be no level of, okay, enough is enough. Pharaoh's not wanting to let go of these people. Chris, would it have been kind of like different levels of, I don't know, trying to get the point across? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, trying to convince them that there's, you know, something different, something better, something. Um, one popular theory um, is that each play is in response to a god of Egypt. And so by turning the Nile River into blood, God is showing up the water god uh, that the Egyptians may have prayed to. By turning the sky dark during the day, God's showing up the sun god. Um, so like God is maybe, in the passage we read, it said, I'm bringing judgment against the gods of Egypt. And so that's one thought is that each play is in response to a God that the people of Egypt would have thought was protecting them, would have thought was worth serving. So each one kind of is taken down by the one true God and on behalf of the people of God. So on the point when he, uh, Moses first went in and threw his staff down and it turned into a snake. And then Pharaoh did the same thing with his two and they went that way. Was that beyond for uh, God changing that or? That is, that is a question for the, for the hereafter, Donnie. I have no idea. Um, but there were magicians that were known to do signs and wonders. And we don't have that same context or like we, if someone threw a staff down and became a snake, we'd be like, okay, like that, but they, that was something that they would, they had a context for. 
Um, there were people that could cast out demons or put curses on people. They lived in a much more spiritual context um, where everything is spiritual and there's good powers and evil powers. And so um, in our world, we're like, wait, well, if there's no power behind these Egyptian gods, where did the snakes come from? Um, but that would not have bothered um, the people of Israel at all. Like that would have just been normal. Um, it's a battle of the gods, not a battle of the one God versus the fake gods. So that some would say even the first commandment that says, have no other gods before me, is saying there might be some other powers or things, but they're not nearly as powerful as the one true God. So it could be Satan, could be evil, could be tricks up their sleeves, you know, like you pull a quarter out of a kid's ear. My kids are convinced I'm magical. Um, I'm not sure if that's happening or if there's some other, you know, spiritual voodoo going on. Yeah. Well, I've always, ever since I first saw the movie when I was, gosh, small, I mean, I've always enjoyed watching it for, for what it was back then and still do today. I mean, it's just... Uh, Ten Commandments? Yeah. You probably never came out. You were... I never really understood it as a child. I knew it had something to do with God, but I mean, it was always exciting to to see every, you know, when it came across Easter time, so. Yeah. So, anything else stand out to anybody before we walk through it and look at some things? It's a, it's a weird story. Kind of though, I listened to some people talking about it uh, on a podcast. They said it kind of disrupts our modern sensibilities. Like you're gonna kill a goat, spread its blood on the door, and then you're gonna kill the people that didn't. They're like it's like that's a pretty harsh story. Um, but the the world in which these people live is incredibly harsh, and their understanding of the gods and the way things work is incredibly harsh. And this pharaoh is the one who uh, asked the Hebrew midwives to throw all the newborn boys into the river. And then the Hebrew midwives wouldn't do it. And so then he enlisted all of Egypt to do it. And so this is probably them reaping what they sow. They're being judged back for the ways that they've been com com complicit in evil. And it speaks to um, sin as a communal act. Um, we oftentimes have reduced sin to just me and what I've done, but sin can be a lot bigger. It can be us. I think the church as a whole is complicit in some sins. I think our nation is complicit in some sins, and, and we it's easy for us because we've made it so individual that we forget some of these corporate aspects. And here is the entire nation of Egypt. I'm sure there are people that were like, okay, the boils were enough. Like, let these people go. Um, but they're, they're a part of it, and so um, they're bringing judgment against the corporate body. And weren't there some non-Israelites who left with the Israelites? Non-Israelites that left. Yeah, there were some people who went along. They were like, we're going with you. <laughs> they were convinced yeah. that these people, and I was reading a Hebrew commentary, and it, it's not, we don't have it in this passage, 
Um, but the way that this Hebrew translated it was a motley throng. And he said an equivalent in modern English would be a riffraff. And so like, they just, and I love it. It's like, oh, it's just like the Jews and the riffraff, like people who are just like, let's go. Uh, because these people, obviously this is the God worth following. Um, so yeah, good, good, good Bible knowledge, Debbie. Right. I just, I really like that part. Cause I think for me, it, it shows like some redemption on the part of the Egyptians. Yeah. In the story that seems so dark, like there were some people who recognized who God was and what was right. Yeah. Yeah. They, they saw in the midst of it and the inclusivity of our God who yeah. says, come on, like you can come. It's not too late, which I think is also hopeful um, and redemptive. Good. So there's instructions about a meal and blood on a doorpost. Um, instructions are including don't boil the meat. Um, that's because boiled meat is gross. I don't, I don't know that that. Uh, one commentary I read said that because the Jewish boys had been thrown into the Nile, that the water there is representing death. And so don't boil it. Um, the idea of burning the whole thing if you didn't eat it was that we're leaving everything here. We're, what is Egypt stays Egypt and we're going to leave. The idea of, um, you know, being ready to go, having your sandals on. If you have an older translation, it says eat with your loins girded, um, where you tie up your, your robe so you can get on the move faster. Um, there's some urgency here. Like we're leaving tonight. Um, and then the, the unleavened bread, um, the idea that they're not setting bread out, they're not you know, waiting for it to bake, we're just going to eat, and we're going to go, it's the equivalent of a holy drive-through, um, like you go by McDonald's, and it could be a sacred meal, supposedly. Um, and then, the so like, we could talk about that, but I think the important part is the passage that is the part of the passage that talks about remembering this day. So he says, this is going to be the first month. All of time, the way that we keep time as Jewish people is now reordered because of this event. This month will be the first month. And when I think of New Year's, we think of fresh starts and resolutions and everybody joins the gym and we're going to be better people and Mark's finally going to stop doing all his, you know, smoking and gambling and everything else that he does. And then we fall off because, and then the next year comes. So new year is a reminder of fresh starts. And so this is, this will be the first month. This will be a new year for you. And then it talks about um, in verse three and 13, remember this is the day which you came out of Egypt where you were slaves because the Lord acted to bring you out of there. Then it talks about you're going to go to the lands. You're going to have a festival. You're to do it every year. And then in verse 8, you should explain to your child on that day, it's because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. So these folks have not even left yet. And they're getting instructions that someday when you make it to the promised land, you're going to have your kids ask you, why do we do this? And you're to tell them, it's because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. So we have a, a reordering of time. We have an instruction to follow uh, and celebrate this thing every year and to teach your kids about it. Why do you think 
we do that? Why is that important to God? Because he knows we forget. Yeah, we're forgetful folks, right? It's quite easy to forget where we've been, where God has shown up, what has happened in our past, and only see what's in front of us right now. We know this in this story because the people are going to ask to go back to Egypt regularly. They've forgotten how bad it was, uh, but they were comfortable because they knew that it was something they knew rather than something unknown. Uh, and, and we're just we're forgetful people. So here God says, you're going to remember, you're going to tell this story over and over again. Um, yeah, any other thoughts on, on remembering or why God would instruct them to do it this way? I think when we remember something that God's done before, it helps us to have faith that he's gonna do it again. So like them knowing that like God was able to bring them out of Egypt and, you know, to free them from being slaves, like that they should have known that like God still got it, like even in the desert, like even when they were wondering if they were going to die in the desert, like they should have known that if God can bring them out of Egypt, then he can certainly like bring them into the promised land. Yeah. Yeah, so the psalm that we read for our call of worship, Psalm 136, is a history of the Jewish people. It starts with uh, God creating, like this is the God who created the earth, and it's the same God who brought us out of Egypt and who split the sea of reeds and who uh, swallowed up Pharaoh and his army and who led us through the desert and who struck down great kings and who uh, gave us this light. Like, we need, like, so that was a song they sang because they forgot. And when you're walking through the middle of a wilderness or a season of doubt or frustration, one of the best tools you could have is to remember where you've been before. Uh, yeah. Can you think of a time when you have remembered something, whether spiritual or otherwise, that has bolstered you in the midst of something bad, scary, unknown? I think for me like definitely last year I can tell that like I'm in a different place like I can still be in a hard place but I still have more hope and before I think that I had pretty much lost all hope and so I think that just like being able to see like how God has brought me through like certain circumstances in my life and how he's worked things out for the better like does help me to see that like it won't always be that way. Like, it won't always be this way. Like, it will get better. And before, I think I didn't, like, I couldn't see that, so. Yeah, yeah sometimes it's just the progress we've made. But we can look back and see, oh, wow, we have come pretty far. Um, can be helpful and hopeful. It doesn't mean we don't have a long way to go still, but it reminds us that we're not doing it on our own. Anything else on remembering? I was just going to say, like, 
the story of Moses is when God revealed his name to the people of Israel. And so, and we see so much of God's character towards people in this post narrative. And so I think it's so important for us to be able to remember back at the story and for them to be able to remember every year, like, this is who God said he is, and this is what he does as a result of that. Yeah. Yeah, this, this is the central story, like even more than creation. Uh, and I mean, these are the descendants of Abram and that's crucial. But if you didn't know where creation came from and you didn't know who their great, 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 great grandpa was, this is the, this is the story. God names, I am who I am and shows up and hears the cries of the people in slavery, brings them into freedom, establishes a covenant, gives them rules to follow for their flourishing. Like this is, this is the story, right? And so if this is the story, who we need to tell it, like we need to remember it. And um, I think sometimes we lack that. I think sometimes we're unrooted people. Uh, we don't always have the story that brings us back um, to who we are and who we belong to. And, and then we struggle and we wonder and we wander. And um, I just, I don't know, it, it, we need to reclaim some of this stuff, right? Like this is, this is important to us. And I don't think that we should appropriate uh, Jewish Passovers and just crash and, and do, but, but we could come up with ways that we remember. One is we do weekly communion because it, it's our story and it roots us. Um, gathering together roots us, but I don't know if anybody does the weekly practices, but I put them out there uh, on Facebook and for those awesome people that join us in person, they can take one on their way out. Um, but one of them this week is to let's come up with some ways, traditions, rituals that help root us in the story of God and what God has done for us and for our people. What I love about this is the Jewish people still do this today. And they don't say it's because of what the Lord did for them when they came up out of Egypt. They say it's because of what the Lord did for me when I came up out of Egypt. Because it's our story. It's our people. And, and we can take it from the Jesus angle and say we've been set free from slavery to sin and darkness. And, and we can celebrate that. But it's this is also like this is who... God is and what God has done. And if we had been enslaved, he would have heard our cry. Um, yeah. Does that make sense? Good answer, Tabby. You know, I like you. Um, the idea of unleavened bread. Does anybody have any idea where that comes from? That's a big part of this. Was it because they were in our hurry? So definitely partially the hurry. Like we don't have time for the bread to rise. But they knew it was coming, so they could have prepared it ahead of time um, and maybe done it that way. Um, I was reading about it this week because I wanted to know, like, what's the big deal? Like, I, I'm a fan of yeast. It's yummy. Um, and so observant Jews to this day, 
before the Passover, they will scour their home to get rid of any yeast. Like if any leavening agent, they clean it out. It's not kept in their home. And like, what is the issue here? And what I read, I read some Hebrew commentaries, which are fascinating. Um, one is yeast is uh, one of the first domesticated things that humans have domesticated. And so it's a very man-made thing. And their deliverance is God rather than man. And so uh, that could be part of it that, like, this is all made, not you, possibly. But I like even more is that yeast is actually a result of decay and death. And so as it eats and consumes the other stuff, now the result is good and delicious and tasty, but so is sin. There are times when sin can look good and taste good and be good, um, but it's actually decay and death. And um, so we need a clean start. We need to go through our house and make sure our whole country is what it said in the text. No, no leavening in your whole country. Get it out. Um, and if we took that to understand decay and death and sin, that's a pretty serious command. And rather than just being about yeast, it's about our condition of our heart. The yeast represents decay and death and all the things that belongs to. So we need to be intentional about scouring our, not just, not, not just this meal, but our whole kitchen and our homes and our neighborhood and our country. Um, one, one, I don't even know who said it. Somebody smarter than me said, it's easier to get Israel out of Egypt than it is to get Egypt out of Israel. And these folks are going to need to get, like, it's not enough <laughs> that we're out of this geographical region. We gotta, we gotta unlearn some things. They've been here for centuries. They've been here for generations. And now we're going to have to learn to depend on God. And, and there are these two competing economies, the economy of Egypt, which is selfish and all about luxury and abundance on the backs of others and their scarcity, their slaves, they probably don't have a lot, but they're seeing everybody else that does have a lot. And, and there's this hoarding and, and it's all about me and survival of the fittest. And then there's the economy of God, which is abundant and uh, rely on me, not yourself. Be dependent on me. If you've noticed in the text, it said if a family is too small to have a lamb, then their neighbor will share with them. Like God's, God's economy is completely different. And we're just gonna, we're gonna make space for each other and we're gonna divide up what we have. And, and we, have, we have to work and trust and live and faith, um, share and be dependent on each other and God. And, and those are two competing worldviews and those are two competing stories and so we have to relearn the story over and over and over again that we're we belong to the economy the culture the kingdom of god not the economy and the culture and the kingdom of egypt and and the stories of egypt are powerful and if you work hard and if you belong to the right people and if you have the most slaves or you have the most wealth then you'll be all great but that's not the story of god and so these two stories compete for our attention, for our devotion, um, for our love. And so if we don't tell the story of God and our, and our redemption, 
then other stories will fill the vacuum. And I think that's one of the biggest struggles we have right now in our church and in our country is that we have forgotten our story and who we belong to and what God has done. And there are competing stories that look good, that sound good, that feel good, and those become our, our rootedness rather than the story of God. So we are more, at times, American than we are Christian. We're at times more Republican or Democrat than we are Christian. We are at times more wealthy than we are Christian or whatever categories we, we have bought into. And those things orient our direction rather than this story. So every year, the Jewish people have this custom where we go through and we get rid of all the yeast symbolizing death and decay. And, and we start fresh. It's a new year and a new dawn. And this is our foundational story. And I think we need some of that. Um, that we're the people of God and we have been set free. Does that make sense? Does that make sense to anybody? I'm preaching. I'm sorry. It's hard to, to not. Um, but the, the idea of competing stories, I think, is that we have stories of power and wealth and exploitation and selfishness and taking, and, and that has just infected the church. And so we need to reclaim the story of a God who heard people's cries, who led them out, who were dependent on him, who had nothing with them, um, nothing to their name, who couldn't vote for president, who had no hope in their nation. Um, and God, that was God's desire and design. And so we need to do the hard work of examining ourselves and, and making sure we uh, have the right story. The other thought I have on that is um, just like we've, we've made sin individual instead of collective, we've also made salvation um, individual as well. This is a corporate salvation, and it's a salvation from more than sin. Sinful nations, sinful practices for sure, but these are not necessarily wholesome, holy people, right? Like they're going to not be the best moral exemplars. Um, and I think that's important to know because it shows that God does not require us to get everything lined up before God acts. Um, but also, salvation is for more than just the forgiveness of sins. That's part of it. Like, I believe fully that Jesus forgives us our sins. But I also believe that salvation is, is more about participating in God's kingdom now and forever. And so because of that, then there are some sins that need to be put to death because they belong to decay and they're yeast and they got to go. Um, but it's also for our flourishing and for the flourishing of the world around us. And so I think one of the stories um, that the church has bought into is Jesus died for my sins. Which sounds right. Like we sing songs that say that and we believe that. But Jesus died for the world. And for our sins, the lies I tell, and for the sins, the way that I uh, oppress my neighbor or neglect my neighbor or the sins of America or the sins of the church. Or, and it's this big, broader thing. Um, it's, so there are two extremes. There's somewhere it's just 
salvation is for forgiveness of sins and somewhere salvation is just for political liberation but it's both it's all encompassing salvation is participating in the kingdom of god now and forever and it's corporate and it's individual and it's personal and it's public that make sense does that does that push back on anything does that make you think of anything does that check any boxes with you I don't want to be the only one that talks is why I'm asking questions now because I've been talking for 30 minutes it's definitely different um, instances of theology than where I grew up where it was very personal and individual um, so even even me with the different reading and education that I've received, it's it's still a different thought that there is, it is corporate. It is all of us together. It is the church. It is the world. It's, you know, I, I want to, I want to keep it just for myself and say, Jesus died for my sins. And I know he died for your sins also, but he died for my sins. Um, so it's, it's a great, um, it puts a new frame on the responsibility and the amount of grace that that comes with a corporate forgiveness, corporate um, acts. It kind of makes me think of something I was talking to Mason about this weekend. He was talking about a couple kids in afternoon school that are kind of being mean to him and how big Mason has to come over and protect him. And I was telling him, I said, well, Mason, you know, you know that, that God made those kids too, those ones that are being mean. And he said, yeah. And I said, and, and you know that God loves them too. He doesn't just love us. And he's, he just kind of looked at me for a second. You know, he had to think about that. He thinks, you know, as, as Christians in church and God loves us, and he had to think outside of that box that, that it's, this is bigger, you know. And that was just kind of a fun little conversation I got to have with them at, and I didn't know he was thinking any different way, and I'm sure it'll be different tomorrow. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, so the president is sick, and I hate to constantly come back to this type of stuff, but a lot of people are saying, you know, like, well, should I pray for him if I don't like him? Well, it depends. Like, which economy do you belong to? The economy of Egypt would say, well, replace them with the most powerful person. The economy of the slaves would be like, well, kill him. Like, he's bad. The economy of God would say, hey, you can join our motley throng. We're leaving because this is destructive. Like, slavery is evil. Like, there is no, there's no parsing. Like, it's not like, well, both sides. No, slavery is evil. But we're leaving. And you can leave too. And so we have com competing stories and economies and we constantly have to it's great Cheryl like God loves those bullies he doesn't love them in their action like he loves them despite their actions but he's, he's not like yes he heard the, the prayers of the people and I believe God's on the side of the oppressed and I believe that God, but I believe that that Pharaoh is just as oppressed in a different way when it comes to spiritual matters now obviously in life he has it a whole lot rosier but I believe in God's economy. God wants Pharaoh to repent and turn and, and realize there's a better way. Um, yeah, there, there's, 
It's bigger. It's broader. And yes, Jesus died for you. When we take communion, if we, if we were gathering and you were coming up and taking the bread, I would say the body of Christ given for you. Like, it's for you, but it's for all y'all, which includes the church, the dwelling. It includes the church universal that, that meets in all kinds of traditions and languages and, and cultures around the world. And it's for the whole world. Like, it's the body of Christ given for Pharaoh and for Trump and Biden and everybody in between. And it's good news. The good news is bigger than Jesus died so that you can go to heaven. It's that Jesus died because there is an alternative reality that you can experience and live and know freedom and joy and peace and faithfulness. And it's not always easy. But if we remember our story, it'll keep us anchored. Amen. How do you think, like, knowing that we're a collective, like, in salvation and collectively, like, I forget what the other thing was, but, like, knowing that it's, like, collective, that it's not just individual, like, how does that change how we approach life? You can't ask the question, you have to answer it as well. Um, I think, anybody have an answer before I, before I throw one out? Oh. Well, I'm going to say, like, so this isn't a concrete answer, but even just thinking about this story and collective sin and collective salvation, I think it changes the way we live. Um, and the only part of the whole first 12 chapters of Exodus that I have underlined is he and his nearest neighbor. And so to me, like when we think about collective sin and then collective salvation, it brings me back to this line in chapter 12 where God is saying, if you don't have a goat, take with, go with your neighbor and get a goat. And it makes me think of the motley crew that's going out with the rest of Israel. It's like a total reordering of how we think of family and of ourselves and how we like share our resources across all parts of our lives. I think when we think of salvation as participating in God's kingdom rather than a prayer I pray so I go to heaven when I die, um, we can bring salvation where we go. Now, I believe people need to respond to Jesus, like I believe that, but I also think that Tabby Shirk says, be a good neighbor. If I'm a good neighbor, I'm bringing salvation. Like that, like, that's God's kingdom showing up. And so whether or not that means uh, anything for the afterlife, I don't know. I let God be the judge and sort that out. I trust that God is good to figure it out. Um, but to me, it makes it a whole lot broader in my scope of how I, I don't look at my neighbor as a project to, I need you to come to my church. I need you to pray a prayer. I need you to, it's that I get to, by being the best neighbor I can, by loving you the way God loves me, by seeing you, even if you bully me as somebody that God loves, I'm participating in God's kingdom. And I will share my guilt with you um, if, if, if you're hungry. I don't know. Um, I also think it, it makes the church more vital. Um, we have so many Christians who try to do it on their own. Um, and I think it just leads to burnout. I think it leads to false views of God. Um, I think that it makes it so that, that we're dependent on each other more. I wish people got that. I wish people like 
there are streams of the church that they say salvation only comes through the church. Like you can't be saved outside the church. I'm not sure I'm fully there, but I'm almost there. Um, because this is where we tell the story and this is where we are rooted and this is where we have each other. And, and when I'm having a, like to quarantine and you come sit in my driveway, um, that's, that's God's economy. And I can't do that by myself. And so in order to fully participate in this economy, we need each other. And so um, we can hold each other responsible, accountable. We can encourage and challenge. It's also a lot different than the whole, well, I grew up, and I know you did too, Brianna, but the same with Mark, where you know, if you told one lie, then you're out and you're back in. That, that, that's such an awful view. No, it's, you, you belong to this family called the kingdom of God, the people of God, and you can leave. I believe you can leave. You have the choice. But as long as you're showing up and here and trying, I think that God's grace is faithful for that. And that's a whole lot more comforting and reassuring but I'm going to show up every week, and if I've had a bad week, I'm going to confess that I've had a bad week, and I'm going to find grace with the people of God. The Spirit of God dwells among us, and so this is where I find salvation. Does that make sense? Now, I do think it's broader and bigger and it's incredibly personal, but incredibly public, and there we live in this paradox of yes, both and. Um, but I feel like we swing to one or the other extreme so often. I think that really makes sense to me because I've been like, not exactly struggling, but trying to figure out like, because people always tell you like, just rely on God for everything, you know, like don't like need people almost when you're growing up like in the church. And it's just like to need people almost seems like a weakness that you're like not trusting God or something. And I kind of feel like God has been like showing me that like people is part of our faith. Like it's part of being a Christian is having people in your life who speak into it and for you to be able to speak into their lives. Like that is part of what God created the world to be. Yeah. You, so one of the commentaries I read on this passage said the critical act of belonging to the people of God is to tell the story. Like that's, that's what we do and you can't do that by yourself I mean, you can talk to yourself and you sometimes we need to we need to remind ourselves i am chosen i am loved i belong like that's important but we do it together corporately with the people of god like it is absolutely vital that we have people that we can belong to and it won't always look the same and it won't always but it's one of the reasons why we like to do church on a small scale so that we we can hear each other's stories and notice that Mark doesn't have red carpet anymore and celebrate that and, and we can know that you know we can know our struggles and, and to me that's what the economy of God looks like and so yeah rely on God and one of the ways that God shows up is is through the people of God and through telling the story um, so that when we gather around uh, we remember that God has shown up in the past and we remember that when I'm stressed out, and, and so I had some of my angst this week was on some house stuff that needs to be done. And then Kristen's like, yeah, but look what God has given us. And I'm like, okay, like, thanks, Pastor Kristen. You made me like, but no, like, we, I need the reminder. And so we, we do it over and over and over again, telling our story. The call to remember is a way of taking the past 
action and making it part of our present. So I remember back then when, and I'm pulling that this Passover story all the way up to today, that God hears our cries, that God sees us in slavery to sin and death and Egypt and modern North America and comparison and money and and he hears our cry and he offers us liberation and freedom and salvation and we can leave it all behind let's gird our loins and go forward following jesus and this is the this is the meal that jesus celebrates with his disciples which we call communion this is what he was celebrating it's the story of redemption and and jesus takes it again beyond just a political liberation but to a personal and the economic and the cultural and the kingdom liberation. And so tonight we come to this table telling our story. This is our story. We have a God who hears and a God who shows up and a God who frees and a God who liberates, a God who collects us together so we can join in together, who gives us these people and who gives us himself. And so Mark's going to lead us through this uh, communion. Our communion table is a stand-up plastic table that was $25 at Costco. But if we had a wooden one in the fancy sanctuary, it would say, do this in remembrance. And so we remember taking this past action and pulling it into today and participating in this redemption story. 